The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. This is in Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Tonight we're looking at the ninth commandment. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And I was thinking of what our world would be like if no one ever told a lie. And we knew that no one ever told a lie. If there were no lies whatsoever, if every time someone spoke, they spoke with the same honesty and truthfulness of God himself. Now, you may think, how is such a world even possible? But realize that is the world to which we are going. The new heavens and the new earth is called the home of righteousness. And part of righteousness is total truthfulness. Through the tongue, everything we say is absolutely true. Jesus made it through a whole life without ever once uttering a falsehood. Not once. So I began to think in certain areas. Uh, This week, my wife and I watched uh, a kind of a rehash of the Michael Peterson trial. And it occurred to me, if we knew that everyone that spoke always told the truth, how would that affect our judicial system? You wouldn't need any juries anymore, right? You wouldn't need any trial selection or anything like that. You'd just basically need to get the person in front of the court, ask them a simple series of questions, and then hand out judgment. Frankly, that's exactly what judgment day is going to be like. There won't be any any uh, uh, trial by jury there. The Lord will bring us through the history of our lives, and uh, he will deal with each of us according to what we have done. And that's it. But uh, think of how much money is spent on on jury selection. You know, one of our our church members was involved in that process on that very trial and went through it 95% and then in the end had to be excused for a technicality. But, I mean, you think of all that would be saved if people only ever told the truth. Or think about these kind of sayings. Like, I was with uh, someone once who swore on a million Bibles that such and such. I didn't really listen after that. I wondered if it would be any more truthful if it were two million Bibles. I think once you're up to a million Bibles, you know, I think that's, you know, excessive. A hundred thousand Bibles should be enough, wouldn't you think? 
But at any rate, absolutely swearing on a million Bibles that such and such was about to be true. Or how about um, the ID process at a bank, right? Uh, if you don't bank there, they need two forms of identification, which always interested me. I heard a story once about Charles Schultz trying to establish his identification at a, at a bank, and the teller was uh, talking to him, and he and it said, Are you the Charles Schultz? Yes, I am. Really? I love peanuts. That's, one of my, that's my favorite thing. Would you be able to draw Snoopy for me and just kind of sign it with my name and all that? Yeah, sure. And so right there, freehand, the whole thing handed over. Well, that's great. Now, where were we? Oh, yes, I'll need two forms of ID. I'm thinking, what better form of ID could there be than Charles Schultz, the signature of the whole thing? But that wasn't enough. Needed two forms of ID. Or think about travel, okay? I mean, I'm thinking about this acutely. I mean, what do you have to do to get on an airplane these days? I mean, especially if you're going to another country, you need a passport. What's that for? It's because people don't tell the truth, right? You need to walk through a metal detector. What's that for? Because people don't tell the truth. I mean, all you have to do is ask a prospective terrorist. I mean, we're not, we're not working on all ten commandments. Just one tonight, okay? All right, so they're still murderous, but they have to tell the truth because they only ever tell the truth. Do you have anything on your person that would harm somebody in any way or would be weeded out by a metal detector? Well, yes, I do, and out comes the gun or whatever. I mean, it would be that easy. You would not need any of the processes we go through in order to board a plane. And how about parenting? She had it first. I did not. Did too. Back and forth. Who had it first? I had it first. No, I didn't. I mean, do you realize how many times parents have to sit in judgment like Solomon over two people who seem to be telling the truth? It's an incredible thing. Everything in our lives is affected by the issue of our failure to tell the truth. The fact that we do not love the truth the way God does. And that's really what we're getting at tonight. Because behind this commandment is the power of the tongue, or the power of words specifically. Our God is a God who has communicated by words. He spoke and it came to pass. He said, let there be light, and there was light. And God, when he speaks, he speaks only truth. Now, last Sunday morning, as we were dealing with the issue of the covenant, you remember uh, how Abram said to God, how can I know that I will receive it? When you stop and think about it, it really is somewhat of a bold question. And it comes within the realm of someone who has only dealt with liars all his life and himself is a liar. He can't simply believe that what God has said is true. And it's a different world that God lives in in heaven than the one we live in here. And yet God was very, very condescending to him and patient. He lowered himself to answer the question rather than rebuking him as the angel Gabriel did to Zechariah when he said, how can I know that I will get it? He said, because you have not believed, you will be unable to speak. And it's very interesting, the connection there. Because you don't believe my words, you'll be unable to speak any words. That's the issue of truthfulness. God only ever speaks truth. 1 Samuel 15, 29, it says, He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. God never lies and he never changes his mind. Titus 1, 1 and 2 says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, listen, who never lies, promised before the ages began. That is a clear statement of the character of God. He never lies. He's, he's uh, incapable of lying. And therefore, God delights in the truth. 
You know, that's a quote from 1 Corinthians 13. It says, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. God delights in the truth. Conversely, he hates falsehood, just as we heard in Proverbs. These are things that God hates. One of them is a lying mouth. Anything that that would utter a lie or would um, speak falsehood. Now, human beings were created in the image of God. And I think very much a central part of that is the ability to communicate abstract truths through these things called words. Language is really at the heart and the core of what it means to be created in the image of God. We can hear and understand words. God can speak to us commands like these Ten Commandments, and we can understand them and obey them. And we also can communicate with one another through words. And therefore, the tongue, words, are very powerful, aren't they? They're very important. Well, you stop and think about everything that's locked up in my mind, in my brain, and everything in the, in the mind of another human being. And we have to get that across. We have to communicate. And if we can't trust each other's words, we have a big problem in the relationship, don't we? It's incredibly important. And so the building up of trust in a relationship is one of the most important things ever. And therefore, James speaks of the power of the tongue in James 3, 1 through 10. It says, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more severely. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle or to keep his whole body in check. When we put put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers, this should not be. Now, in James 3, 1 through 10, which I just read, uh, it says that the tongue is a world of evil. I believe that this issue, that of, of lying or falsehood, is one of the central evils of the evil of the tongue. The fact that we can't 100% trust other human beings to tell us the truth. Now, for this reason, so many of the statements of human wickedness and sin is focused on the tongue. It says in Psalm 116, 10 and 11, I believed, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted, and in my dismay I said, all men are liars. All people are liars. All human beings are liars. Now, that may sting you a little bit and say, you know, I struggle with a lot of things. I don't know that I struggle with this one. Well, just ask yourself this. Do you cherish the truth as much as Jesus Christ did? That's the way to think of it. Do you cherish, is the truth as valuable to you and as vital to you as it was to Christ? In Isaiah 57, 4, it says, Whom are you mocking? At whom do you sneer and stick out your tongue? Are you not a brood of rebels, the offspring of liars? And so he speaks to uh, the Jews at that point and say they are the offspring of liars. Uh, then there's Titus 1, 12 and 13. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. 
So, I mean, if you can think of reading this kind of thing, but Cretans are always liars. It doesn't mean that they always lie. Everything they say is a lie. But it means that their character trait um, is that consistently of lying, not cherishing the truth. By the way, I was in a logic class at MIT. I'll never forget this. And the professor had the gall to bring this verse out to prove that the Bible was not inspired scripture. You know how he did it? He said, even one of their own prophets has testified. In other words, a Cretan prophet has said, all Cretans or Cretans are always liars. Well, that brings you into a logical conundrum, doesn't it? Because the next thing Paul says is this testimony is true. Right? So that means he couldn't have been lying when he said it and off you go. The mind never can get out of that loop and therefore the scripture is not really God-breathed. Well, I didn't buy it. Um, I said, listen, I think what he's saying here is that Cretans are characterized. Their character is uh, that of being a liar. They never lose that. But it doesn't mean every single thing they say is a lie. And that's the way I understand total depravity as well. It doesn't mean we're as wicked as we could be or we're only ever sinning all the time. What it means is that we cannot lose the character trait of sinfulness. That's what I look at. And then in Romans 3, 9 through 20, and this is a statement of our sinfulness apart from Christ. Listen to how many things are focused on the issue of how we speak. What should we conclude then, says Paul, are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So that's the general description of the sinfulness of humanity, universally. But now listen to this. It says, their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. Did you hear that? In other words, we are good at lying. We become experts at it. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. It's all focused right around here. Isn't that interesting? Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. And then it goes on to other parts of the body. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then in Mark 7, 21 and 22, it says, For within, for from within, from the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit. In other words, lies. So out of our heart come the lying. And that's the issue. Now, where did lying start? Well, it didn't start, and I've mentioned before the first lie of the Bible. Okay, it's a quiz. What was the first lie of the Bible? What's that? That's right. Okay, but the first human lie, I should have said. So you're going exactly where I'm going. But who is the first human being a total lie? It was Cain, remember? When God said, where's your brother Abel? You remember what Cain said? I don't know. Well, that was a lie. I mean, he knew exactly where Cain was because he'd put him there. All right? So he knew very well. And that's where it began. But it began, as Jack said, it began with the devil himself. And Jesus said this in John 8:44. You belong, he says, to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. Did you hear that? There's no truth inside him, therefore he can only ever lie. That's what he does. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. What does it mean that the devil is the father of lies? What it means is that he begets lying in our hearts. He tempts us to lie, tempts us not to cherish the truth the way that Jesus did. And so God hates lying, as we've already read in Proverbs 6. 
Also, it says in Proverbs 12:22, the Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in men who are truthful. And in the end, God will judge liars. It says in Revelation 21:8, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now, this is rather striking, isn't it, when you stop and think about it? Psalm 116 says all people are liars. Revelation 21 says all liars end up in a fiery lake of burning sulfur. So you've got to be careful about the word all. The first all was absolute, wasn't it? All human beings are liars because we learn that from many other scriptures. But the second is wonderful in that it is not absolute because Jesus came to save liars from their lying. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But this is the lot of those who are never redeemed from a lying heart, and namely eternal condemnation. Now, the immediate scope of the Ten Commandments here, the Ninth Commandment, is that of court trials in ancient Israel. In other words, uh, they needed to have a way that they could carry on trials. And so the issue here is bearing false witness specifically in the issue of a trial or some serious matter in which you would swear or you would establish some kind of a witness or a testimony between two individuals. And so the focus here is especially on a court trial. Now, people were required back then to bear witness in these matters. Listen to Leviticus chapter 5. It says, If a person sins because he does not speak up, when he hears a public charge to testify regarding something he has seen or learned about, he will be held responsible. In other words, the Jews were responsible to speak up when they saw something uh, that somebody was being tried for. But this commandment, the Ten Commandments, says when they speak up, they need to be telling the truth. It needs to be truth that they speak in a court of law. Therefore, and for this reason, there had to be a testimony of two or three witnesses if anyone was, for example, going to be put to death. It says in Numbers 35.30, anyone who kills a person is to be put to death as a murderer only on the testimony of witnesses. No one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. Let me ask a question. Why? Why is no one to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness? Come on, we ruminated together before. Why? Why is one witness not enough? Because people lie. And so you have to have a corroboration of two. Will that guarantee... Will that guarantee that the person being put to death is really guilty? No, it won't. But this is the establishment that God made within our sinful world to somehow put a check and balance against our uh, lying. And eventually, if you look at the history of jurisprudence and English common law and all that, that's where you ended up with a, a, a trial by jury of your peers because individual judges could be corrupted and they would put people to death because they had a political agenda or because they were bribed or some other thing. And so there would be these trial of juries. And then it says, Deuteronomy 17.6, On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a man shall be put to death, but no one shall be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. The issue is the impossibility of reading the heart. A judge cannot sit there and read the heart of the individual. They can't know. They're standing on the outside. We can't get into their mind, into their heart. All we can do is listen to their words. And therefore, the witnesses that come up The ninth commandment says they must be telling the truth. Now, why is this especially important? Well, you can actually use your testimony to put someone to death. It's a lethal weapon, right? It can literally kill somebody. If you get up there and give a false testimony against your neighbor on a capital crime, they will be executed on the basis of your words. And therefore, your words are as violent as any gun or sword ever would have been or is. 
False witness can put someone to death. Therefore, in the law of Moses, there was a provision for a doubling back on the false witness. In other words, if the false witness is uncovered as a false witness, listen to what happens. Deuteronomy 19.15 and following. One witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse a man of a crime, the two men involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation. And if the witness proves to be a liar giving false testimony against his brother, listen, then do to him as he intended to do to his brother. In other words, if it's a capital crime, he's going to be put to death for being a false witness in a capital crime. Do to him as he intended to do to his brother. You must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear this and be afraid and never again will do such an evil thing among you. Show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly here on this issue of bearing false witness against your neighbor. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. You must do to the false witness what he intended to do to his brother. That's how serious this is. And you can see why. We're, we're talking about ruling a nation. Issues are going to arise between people. Conflicts, even crimes, even murder. And if you don't have a legal system in which the witnesses must tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, you have no way of proving guilt or innocence. The whole system, the whole society falls apart. So that's the immediate context, and that is uh, the issue of, of a trial uh, in ancient Israel. But there's a, a deeper context as well. And I think it has to do, first of all, with just not lying in any way whatsoever. Bearing false witness against your neighbor initially means just speaking in a court. But if you look more deeply at the context, not just here in, in the Ten Commandments, but throughout Scripture, it really has to do with not lying at all, ever. God's word covers it all. Leviticus 19.11 says, You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely nor lie with one another. Now, I think that's pretty powerful. There's really no wiggle room in there, is there? It wasn't really a lie. Well, yes, but the scripture says you shall not deal falsely with one another either. You know, it's amazing how wicked and tricky our hearts are. Technically, it was true. You remember Abram and Sarai. Well, she really is my sister, right? Yeah, technically, but he misled Abimelech. We'll get to that in Genesis 20. He really lied. He misled him. And so the scripture has to do more broadly with not lying in any way. Leviticus 6, 1 through 5, the Lord said to Moses, if anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord by deceiving his neighbor about something entrusted to him or left in his care or stolen, or if he cheats him, or if he finds lost property and lies about it, or if he swears falsely, or if he commits any such sin that people may do, when he thus sins and becomes guilty, he must return what he has stolen or taken by extortion, or what was entrusted to him or the lost property is found, or whatever it was he swore falsely about. He must make restitution in full and add a fifth of the value to it and give all to the owner on the day he presents his guilt offering. So you can see there in Leviticus 6, 1 through 5, it really is broad, as broad as anything you might ever say to your neighbor that's not true. It's not just in a court situation. Many of us will never be literally or legally in a court situation, but yet we interact with each other verbally all the time, don't we? And so God's command goes as broad as anything that we would say to one another. If I can suggest a second scope, it's not just a matter of lying. I think it also is a matter of harming our neighbor with our tongue in any way. It really just has to do with how we speak. 
With the mouth we praise our God and Father, and with it we curse men who are made in God's image. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. So this would be anything that you speak which destroys the reputation or character of another. For example, slander. In Leviticus 19.16, it says, Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Now, what is slander? Slander is just going around and spreading a report that may well be true, but assassinates the person's character. And you have no business spreading that lie and it, or that, that slander. It is a wicked thing. It says in Psalm 15, uh, verse 1 through 5, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary, who may live in your holy hill, he whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong, and listen, casts no slur on his fellow man. Did you hear that? So anything you say that causes somebody to think poorly about some other person, now that is evil and it's wrong. Now here's where we all get convicted. Have you in the last week or month opened your mouth and with the express purpose spoke so that somebody would think more poorly of somebody else? It's amazing how often we do that, isn't it? Amazing how often we speak so that the person who's listening to us will kind of come to our side on an issue and think poorly of another. I found the Lord convicting me on this very issue. And we need to be careful about it. We need to be careful. Another issue is gossip. It says in Proverbs 16:28, A perverse man stirs up dissension and a gossip separates close friends. There's a story about a... Uh, a man who went, this is a medieval story, went to a, uh, a monk for help. He had made slanderous statements about somebody and he was sorry and wanted to make the relationship right. And the monk said, what I want you to do is go down to the chicken farm and I want you to get a bag full of feathers. I want you to go through the village and I want you to put five feathers on the doorstep of every neighbor um, in the village, everyone. So he went and did it, came back and the uh, monk told him, okay, let's wait till tomorrow. The next day he said, now I want you to go and collect them. Every one. I don't want you to miss a single one. Well, there was not one left on any doorstep. And he went back and said, it's impossible. I can't get them back. The wind's blown them all over. And he said, and that's the way it is with gossip. Once it's out from your mouth, you can't get it back. And it's very, very hard. You know, it's something I think about as a pastor. I think you can, you can harm pastor, a pastor by a false accusation as much as by anything else. And so always it's important to be careful what you say about somebody and how you slander them or gossip against them. Because once those words get out, they have an effect, and it's very hard for that person to undo that effect. It could be years, even if there's no truth to it at all. And so we have to be careful how we use our words. Not to lie in any way, and not to harm our neighbor in any way with what we say. We're supposed to be very, very careful with our words. Now, this final one, I think, comes home to me as a pastor and a teacher of the Word of God. Uh, the Word of God itself is a testimony, isn't it? It's, it's a pillar of truth. We point to it and we say, thus says the Lord, and this is the way it is. Well, how vital is it, therefore, for a teacher of the Word of God, anyone sharing the Word of God, to speak only right teaching, to rightly divide the Word of truth, and to not give a false testimony against his neighbor concerning the matter of unfolding the Word of God? You know, some of the strictest, I think probably the absolute uh, fiercest statements in the Bible are made about false teachers in Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter 2 is a dreadful chapter. And in that, it talks about false teachers. He says there are also false teachers among you, just as there were false prophets among them. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, slandering or denying the sovereign Lord who brought them and bringing swift destruction on themselves. And then he says this, blackest darkness is reserved for them. 
And so the most dreadful curses and punishments are reserved for false teachers of the word. And so, yes, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor has to do with court trials in ancient Israel, first and foremost. But there are other connections, aren't there? Lying in any way about anything, slandering and gossiping against your neighbor, and thirdly, the issue of false teaching or giving a false testimony concerning the Lord. Now, isn't it beautiful that we who are convicted about these sorts of things, who see within our own record the fact that it's a, it's a dreadful thing to have to stand before Christ and he says, you will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word you've spoken. And we say, oh, Lord, rescue me from the catalog of my words. If all you have are my words, I'm undone. That's what Isaiah said when he said, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. The beautiful thing then is that Christ stood in the gap for us, was slain for us, bore the burden of our sin and our wickedness on himself. Now, here's the interesting thing about Jesus. It says of Christ, he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. That means he never lied. He never spoke a falsehood. Even when he was on trial for his life, he spoke the truth. But here's the incredibly interesting thing about this for me, especially in this study tonight. How was Jesus in the end put to death? Was it not by the testimony of false witnesses? Was it not this very commandment that put him to death? Do you remember in Matthew chapter 27, it spoke about how, or 26, how they were trying to get false witnesses, but their stories just wouldn't line up. You remember that? He said this. No, he really said this. And they just couldn't. They were so frustrated that night, middle of the night or early morning, trying to get some false witnesses whose stories would sound true enough to kind of legally put this innocent man to death. In Matthew 26, it says the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. It, what, a, what a sham that was. And what a tra- travesty to watch one false witness after another come and their stories don't line up in any way. All they need are two who can kind of get their stories lined up. And you remember what happens in the end. The high priest stands up and addressed Jesus directly. You remember? He just, enough is enough. And he says, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Do you remember what he said? He said, I am. And then he quoted Daniel. He said, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. You remember that. And that's what got him killed. The high priest tore his robes. But it was the false witnesses that legally put Jesus to death in the end. Jesus always spoke the truth. He loved the truth. He even spoke the truth when he was speaking to liars. In John 8:55 and following, it says, Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Did you hear what Jesus said? He said, you know, if I said I didn't know him, I'd be a liar like you. You're all liars. You're all children of, of the father of lies. But I can only ever speak the truth. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham, they said. I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. And at that they picked up stones to stone him. Jesus always told the truth, even if he knew it was going to get him killed. You remember when he was standing before Pontius Pilate? And Pilate, he was charged with being king of the Jews. Remember that? And Pilate came in and said, are you king of the Jews? Jesus said, are you asking me on your own or does someone else talk to you about me? He said, am I a Jew? It was your own people who handed you over to me. What have you done? 
Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would have fought for me. But as it is, my kingdom is from another place. Oh, you are a king then. Jesus said, you are right in saying I'm a king. For this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. You remember what Pilate said? What is truth? Cynically. Because all he's ever seen his whole life as a judge is just false witnesses one after the other. But right in front of him was truth. That is the Lord that we serve. And he died that day for liars like me. He died that day to save me from my lying heart and from my lying mouth and from yours too. That's who saved us. And in the end, he redeemed us from lying itself so that we can stand before God and speak only ever truth in the future world that he has bought for us, a world of righteousness where only righteousness can dwell. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.